Well, good morning. Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Mark chapter 15. Uh, it's page 853 in a Blue Pew Bible. I'd love for you to follow along with us there if you do not have your own. Um, I, I just feel like it needs to be said, no matter how boring this sermon is, okay, and it, no matter how hungry you are, you are not allowed to go get Easter eggs out on the front lawn um, before the kids get out there. Um, but looking forward to that. It's been such a great morning um, already. And, um, you know, Palm Sunday <clears throat> is this kind of annual reminder for me um, of the importance of expectations. You know, so much of what we judge to be good or bad in our life or, or to be frustrating or successful is based upon what we expect going into it. And, and I think whether we realize it or not, we have expectations with everything. So a couple examples, uh, I think yesterday, a couple days ago, I saw that a new movie release came out for the newest, and I think last, Star Wars that's going to come out around Christmas. Um, I went to one Star Wars movie in my life, I was 10, I fell asleep in the theater, and I never watched it again. So I know that, I know it's like a whole cult, so don't come after me at the pulpit, but, um, but if you are looking forward to that, they say it's the last one until they announce probably three more, probably the year after, and, and you're going to be going into that movie with expectations. And whether you say it's a good movie or a bad movie, it's going to be based upon what were your expectations going in. Uh, for our single men and women in uh, the room, if somebody, a friend of yours said uh, that they are going to set you up on a date. And they say they have the most well-rounded, awesome person for you. They are perfect. That is going to be a little bit different in the way you approach that date than if they said, uh, you know, they'll do, you know. <laughs> You're like, well, why you, no, no, okay, but wh like, wh what is your expectation going into that? If you are married, and you're a husband, and you go to your wife, and you say, um, babe, in one month, we're going away, and the whole month, you're just giving little teasers of what to expect, and it's going to be a surprise, we're going to go away, uh, don't forget to pack your bathing suit, just saying, I think you should have a bathing suit, and let's say after a month, you get in the car, and you take her to the Comfort Inn on Route 17, <laughs> And you're like, um, we're going to the pool. We're going to the hotel pool, bringing your bathing suit. And, and like, it, it could be a wonderful little evening, right? A little night out. But you set expectations <laughs> for an entire month, and it's probably not going to end well for you. <laughs> we never approach anything without expectations. And, and Palm Sunday kind of exposes the expectations people had of Jesus. And they're shouting Hosanna and they're waving palm branches as he enters into Jerusalem because they thought he was on his way to finally take the reign and the rule over Jewish people, that he was this next great king that would free Israel from Rome, kind of create autonomous rule once again, and... Throughout the week, they get to a place on Friday where they are really, really disappointed. And the irony is that Jesus was a king, just not the one they were expecting. And they originally thought their expectations were too high for Jesus, but the reality is that it turns out their expectations were far too low. And, you know, in our series uh, through Mark that we have been going through for 16 months now, we preached on this passage, the triumphal entry, last September. So meaning all the Mark sermons from last September to today has spanned just five days in real time. It's this dramatic slowdown in the Gospel of Mark. If you were writing a biography today and you spent the whole last third of the book in just a span of one week, the publishers probably wouldn't go for that. Like, it's not a good idea. 
that to spend so much time on just one week. But Mark did, all the gospel writers did, because it was and it still is the most important week in all of history. Last week we pre preached on the uh, crucifixion, and I said you cannot overemphasize the importance of the cross. But the story of the gospel, all us church folk know, it's not done at the cross. And so you have the background and you say yes, because Jesus didn't just die, he died and rose again. And yes and amen, that's next week. But there's a small detail that often gets overlooked in the gospel story. It's his burial. But when you share the gospel with somebody, you, you, you say Jesus died and he rose again. We never really hear he also was buried. But I think we should reevaluate that. You know, all four gospel accounts are careful to include the details of his burial. Again, think about this with me. Two gospel writers, Matthew and Luke, talk about his birth, the, the Christmas story. But all four give us the details of his burial. And yet we freak out over Christmas, and I'm all in on Christmas. It's like weeks and weeks of preparation. And only two gospel writers give us the details about that. All four talk about his burial. But the importance, I think, gets highlighted most clearly by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, the church at Corinth, if you know or are familiar with that letter, it was raked with rivalries and heated disagreements. There were so many issues at the church at Corinth. And so Paul, all throughout this letter, is correcting, he's rebuking, he's instructing, hot issue here, hot issue there, just trying to bring some peace. And then he gets to the end of the letter, chapter 15, and Paul wants to get back to the basics. He wants to kind of reset this foundation for them so they can now address all these different issues. Okay, it's like a coach coming into a dysfunctional team or a new CEO stepping into a fractured organization. And they look at all the problems on this team or in this company and they just think, okay, we got to go back to the basics. So Paul's doing, and he says this in 1 Corinthians 15, listen, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. For I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Did you see that? Jesus died, very careful to say, he was buried, and then he rose again. So why was the burial so important to the gospel writers? To Paul to the early church, and what are we missing in the church today in 2019 if we do not reflect well on the burial? That's what we're after. So let's go. Mark 15, it's a short passage. We're going to read it, verses 42 through 47. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Here's where we're going this morning. Four reasons why the burial is a significant part of the gospel story. Four reasons. Theological, historical, 
testimonial, personal. Don't worry, we'll take them one at a time. Start with number one, theological. To put it bluntly, Jesus was buried because he was dead. And nothing short of his death would have accomplished the will of the Father to forgive sinners. And so I want to unpack that because um, someone could say, okay, um, I understand the cross. Jesus hung on the cross. Our sin was put onto him on the cross. There was this immense suffering. There was pain. There was this kind of spiritual abandonment from the Father in that moment. But did Jesus really have to die? If he was just unconscious for a while, kind of went into a coma, but then slipped out of it and never died, would that really make a difference in our story? And the answer is a resounding yes. It would make a huge difference. And all four gospel writers were explicitly clear by writing about his burial. In fact, if you notice how redundant Mark was when I just read that passage, Pilate was surprised to hear he had already died. So he summoned the centurion to ask if he was already dead. And when he learned that he was dead, like, you know what Mark's trying to tell you there? We get the picture. And what we spoke about last week, that the death of Jesus on the cross simultaneously spotlights both the sin of man and the love of God. And, and because sin, what, what does sin do? If you ask, like, what's so bad about sin? Like, what does it actually do? It disintegrates. It separates. The separation of Jesus' body from his soul in his death is necessary because above all else, sin separates us from God. It offends, it pulls apart from God, from one another. And so let, let me just give you an example so we don't stay kind of in the ethereal range. Let me take one that probably hits a little too close to home for me and maybe for you. If I come home from work one night, the day working, and I'm tired, and I'm probably thinking a little too highly of myself because I've done some really important things today, and my schedule was pretty full, and I just come home, and I sit down, and I do not help out Rochelle with the kids. I don't ask to do anything. I just sit down, and then she says to me, because it's a track meet in our house all the time, like, can you help? <laughs> can you do something, anything? Can you just get up and help me and get going? If in that moment, if I kind of bite back with this uh, sarcastic one-liner intimating, hey, I've worked all day, and I'm tired, and I've done some really important things. I was in front of a lot of important people. That is sin that separates. And it separates me from my wife, but first and foremost, it separates me from God, and it is a sin against the Lord, and it is the pride that separates me. Because if you consider any sin, you take that example, you take any other example, whether it's a sin of omission, uh, not doing what you should, or sin of commission, doing what you shouldn't, at its core, all of it is rooted in a pride that separates us from God. And, and the thing about sin is it's never satisfied. We, we, we can never quarantine it. We can never think like, okay, I know that's wrong, but I can manage that. I can keep that over here and everything else over there. It's not the way sin works. There's no right way to do the wrong thing. Because sin always wants more. Uh, there's a pastor down in Central Jersey, a buddy of mine, wrote a blog. I, I can't get it out of my mind. He, he's talking about sin. The name of the blog post was Sin Can Grow. He said like a cub, it always becomes a lion. Sin can grow. 
like a vine that starts small but eventually covers an entire wall, sin can grow. And sin against a holy God who is wholly good in whom there's no darkness at all, that separation cannot just be forgotten about, that there is a cost to that. And, and we see it play out all throughout the Bible, but then we are explicitly told in Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. Sin ultimately will get what, it's, what it wants. Life without God, eternal separation, and that is the cost. Which is why the death of Jesus is so necessary. Because it is by the grace of God that he saves us and he forgives us and he restores us through the death of a substitute. Which is why the back half of Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus was buried because he died, and he died because only by his death that our sin could be atoned for and we could receive new hearts. There was a movie in the early 2000s that came out, and maybe you've seen it, it was called John Q, 2001, 2002, somewhere around there. Um, I don't know if people think it's a good movie or not, like movie critics, but I long ago decided that anything with Denzel in it is good, <laughs> all right? And, and I don't want to argue about that, I'll fight for that, but um, in the movie, Denzel plays a guy named John Q. He has a young son who had a serious heart condition and he needed a transplant, but insurance wouldn't cover it. And so he holds up a hospital in order to force it to happen. I won't go down the road of is, it, like the, is that a moral decision or not, I'm going to leave that alone. But push comes to shove, a life-giving transplant, a new heart is only possible if someone else dies. And not just anyone, but someone who matches your blood type. Denzel finds out that he has the same blood type as his son and, and decides he's going to give his life for his son. So he forces doctors at the hospital to agree to give his heart to his new son. And you'll have to watch to see if it actually happens. But the point is, you cannot get a new heart without someone else dying. And the gospel proclaims that Jesus has your blood type. And he died. But he didn't die to make us nice. He died to make us new. And his burial is the theological nail in the coffin that he really died. And I'm going to be awkward here and stop and ask for a burp cloth for my wife because I'm sweating out of control. And so uh, thank you, Lauren. I appreciate that. Going to need this today. It's a little warm. Praise God for him working with us in our awkwardness. All right. Number two historical. If the theological reasoning of the burial points back to the necessity of his death, the historical reasoning points forward to the necessity of the resurrection. Um, so the witnesses of the apostles and the early church was to share the good news of Jesus Christ, right? Still our mission today. Uh, the, the good news that restores men and women, that, that restores cultures, that fights back against um, uh, systematic injustices in our area and in our world and all of creation and all of the um, good news hinges on the resurrection. And the biblical writers did not refer to this event as something that was kind of revealed to them eventually in a mystical way or a fantastical way. They see it as a historical event. And we'll talk a lot more about this next week. But the burial gives historical evidence to the fact that there was an extended time between death and being raised to life. So another question for you, got a lot of questions today. If Jesus died for just one second, 
and not three days, would anything change? So he's on the cross, and he stops breathing, pulse stops, dead, heart stops beating, and then one second later, God raises him to dead. Would anything change in the gospel? We could debate this. I, I, I think I could say no, I don't think so, because God's not bound by time. Even if you think Jesus had to do something in that time period, like descend into hell, and we could debate about that, but not right now. He could have done any of that in any timeline. He's outside of time. But the three days was added to give credibility to the historical witness of the church. Because if everything hinges on the resurrection, the only way you would say, I don't believe, is if you don't believe the resurrection. And there's only two ways to deny, deny the resurrection. One is to say Jesus was never raised from the dead. And the other is to say that Jesus never actually died. So only real two ways you could deny it. And the denial, the first one, that he was never actually raised is what was immediately promoted by the Pharisees. Uh, there is a fascinating passage in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew's the only one who shares it. Where the Roman guards who were at the tomb go back to the Pharisees and report what happened. Something big happened. The tomb was removed. The body is gone. This elite group of Jews hears this and goes, oh no. And so they have a plan. So I want to read Matthew 28, 11 to 15. You don't have to turn there. Just follow along. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. And so they took the money and did as they were directed. Listen to this. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. They paid off the guard to tell people that the disciples came and stole the body in the middle of the night. He wasn't raised. He was dead. He's buried. And then he was stolen. Which is why the apostles, if you read the New Testament, they're so clear on saying, we saw Jesus, and we talked to him, and we ate with him. It's why Paul, in his letter, in that same chapter 15 that we read from earlier, this is written about 20, 25 years after the event itself, he said Jesus appeared to 500 people after he rose from the dead. And he writes, most of which are still alive. See what Paul's saying? He goes, go talk to them. Hundreds of people around. Go talk to them. They saw Jesus. They ate with Jesus. They interacted with Jesus. This body was not stolen. He was raised. More modern and postmodern thoughts are exploring the fact that maybe Jesus never actually died. You know, this is Easter week coming up. I guarantee you there will be some kind of History Channel documentary, Discovery Channel maybe, that claims there is new evidence that questions whether Jesus ever actually died. It's often called the swoon theory. Maybe he was in a coma. Maybe his body went into shock from all the suffering, and he went unconscious. And he went to the tomb, woke up, and then got out. And it doesn't seem like that was a very prominent view in the first century because the apostles aren't really writing much about it. But it is interesting to note the fact that all four Gospels give the name Joseph of Arimathea who he was, where he's from, indicating again, you can go talk to him. Go talk to his family. You know what? Jesus was dead. No pulse. No beating heart. He wrapped him up and he buried him. 
So we have theological, we have historical, now third, testimonial. So speaking of Joseph of Arimathea, let's just talk about him a little bit. Again, it's rare that all four Gospels kind of agree, and they, they all give us his name. They all give us some information about him. And so I want to get this whole picture together from the four Gospels. Mark just said he was a member of the council, that he condemned Jesus to death and was looking for the kingdom of God. Okay? Matthew and John are actually very shorter. They just tell us he was a disciple of Jesus. Hmm. Luke gives us the most information. He was a member of the council. He was a good and righteous man who had not consented to the decision of the council to crucify Jesus, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. So there's our picture. He's a Pharisee. He's a respected member of the Sanhedrin. He disagreed with the council's decision to crucify Jesus, but in all likelihood, it was not public disagreement. And at some point, he became a disciple of Jesus. Now, there's really two ways. One, he was kind of a secret, always follower of Jesus, disciple. Or, by the time Matthew and Luke were writing their account, about 20, 30 years after the event, he had at that time become a disciple of Jesus. You following? Could be either of those. But one other wrinkle is that John's gospel tells us Joseph wasn't alone. There was another Pharisee named Nicodemus who helped Joseph prepare the body, carry the body, put it into the tomb. Nicodemus approached Jesus early in his ministry, as told in John chapter 3. He had a question, how can I inherit the kingdom of God? Jesus tells him, you must be born again. Nicodemus goes, what? What does that mean? How can that happen? So Joseph and Nicodemus have this kind of churning inside of them. They are drawn to Jesus, but there is this fear of the rest of the Pharisees. And at the same time, they watch this horror take place on the cross. And once Jesus dies, Joseph courageously approaches Pilate to say, can I have the body? Now, typically in a Roman crucifixion, they would not take the body down from the cross once somebody died. They would leave it there for days. Because if you remember, we talked about last week, the crucifixions happened on a public road. So people would be constantly passing by it. And Rome wants to see this will happen to you if you rebel against us. And so they see the body start to decompose, and it's smelling, and it's a just horror to look at. And they're just like, people are like, I don't even want to see that. And they're like, yes, exactly. Don't mess with us. But Pilate talks to the centurion and just decides, because he kind of knew, remember, Jesus was innocent. He probably feels bad. He goes, all right, Joseph, you can have the body. Because Jewish law says that a proper burial must occur by sunset, the day if someone died. We're told that in Deuteronomy chapter 21 even if it's a criminal. So Joseph has to act quickly. Jesus died about 3 p.m. Time is ticking, and he's just compelled to go to Pilate, who is surprised that Jesus was already dead, and get the body. From there, Joseph wraps the body in linens. Nicodemus brings some spices to put with the body. Together they carry it. They put it in a tomb cut out of a rock. A little bit of an aside here. Um, Luke in his account of the Christmas story, gives this little detail that feels really random at the time, but he makes a subtle connection. In the story of Jesus' birth, he's the only one to write that Jesus was wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger because there was no room for him in the inn. 
And then at the burial, Luke writes, Jesus' body, once again wrapped in linen and placed in a tomb that no one had been in before. It's the subtle, powerful picture that Jesus was born to die. And he was isolated at birth, and he was isolated at death because he alone could accomplish the mission of the Father. The Bible's awesome. Read your Bibles. It's awesome. And then Mark reminds us, carrying forward from last week, that, that who's still there? Who, who's still watching this whole take place? The women. Now it's two of the three that were at the crucifixion. Mary Magdalene, Mary mother of Joseph, and they are watching. And again, Mark's like, Mark, why are you including this? This is random. Uh, you, you didn't talk about them the whole gospel. And now they're at the crucifixion, and now they're looking at the burial, and we know this is all setting up for next week. It's all setting up for the final passage in Mark. But here's the point about Joseph's story. The burial marked a breakthrough for him. He was still fearful. John's gospel said he was still fearful when he approached Pilate. But he could not suppress his convictions. And when looking around to see who's going to be the one that's going to take his body and nobody's going up there, he finally just realized, why not me? And he took a risk. And he did it professionally, he did it relationally, socially. I mean, you cannot overestimate the risk that he takes in every way. But the reason is, is that he saw Jesus on that cross, and it changed him. And it propelled him to act, and fear, while present, could not hold him down anymore. Fourth, personal. And so I want to kind of land the plane this morning, briefly highlighting how those first three categories can apply to you. Theological, historical, testimonial, they have an impact for you, 2019 Grace Church, Ridgewood, New Jersey. And I want us to understand that if we just kind of gloss over the burial, we do so to our detriment. So first, from a theological point of view, the burial deepens our faith. Faith is the primary covenant requirement of God on his people. It's his primary requirement upon you to have faith. To be a Christian is to have faith in Jesus Christ. Well, how do you define saving faith? Someone just says, what's faith? What is it? Best definition I've seen. I'll read it slow. Read it twice in case you want to take it down. Faith in Christ means being satisfied with all that God is for us in Jesus. Faith in Christ means being satisfied with all that God is for us in Jesus. To have faith is to be satisfied, to be fulfilled and joyful in all that he is and all that he did, especially in his death and burial and resurrection, because through his death, our sin was forgiven and we were reconciled back to the Father. And through his resurrection, that victory was declared, and we have a promise of what is to come. And so the burial deepens faith in both the death and resurrection. And it also provides us what we need to grow into maturity, right? So, so faith in Christ is not just the doorway into the Christian life. Just have faith, and then you can go do some other things. It's the foundation that your whole Christian life lives upon. You need to wake up every day and have faith. It's how we grow into maturity and just praise God for his patience for us because I mature much slower than I think I want to. 
and it feels like, as Paul says, just one degree at a time, and yet it's he who is faithful to deepen our faith in him. Second, from historical point of view, the burial strengthens our witness. You know, the great hope we have to share with others that we all know, but we oftentimes struggle to do, is that Jesus died, and on the third day, he rose again. And in our lives, God appoints us and puts people around us who need to hear the good news, the, the gift of Jesus and, and the offer of restoration. And the wit, they, we want them to witness what he's done in our lives. We want to share that. We want to show that in the way we live and the way we uh, seek out to uh, help the least of these and, and how we just want to be outward focused and not just all about ourselves. We want our lives to reflect that. But we also have to tell them that they cannot experience this restoration without faith in Christ. It's not just about improving your behavior. It's not you're acting this way. You've got to act more like this way and then you're good. It's no, you put your faith in Christ, you repent of your sin, and he makes you good. Which is why the burial is this kind of connective tissue between a death and a resurrection for us when we share that good news. It's why Paul said he died, he was buried, and he was raised. And the, the church over the last 2,000 years has just been taking this forward, just, just promoting this message forward, and now it's our turn. And then third and last from a testimonial point of view, the burial increases our courage. Just as Joseph was given the courage in Jesus' death to do what no one else wanted to do, so the Spirit gives us courage to do the hard things that glorify him. I'm convinced that God is always churning in his people. He's always churning in our hearts to step out in faith, to do the hard things, to overcome fear that's holding us back. We are so afraid. We don't want to admit it. But God's putting stuff in our hearts to do, and we are just fearfully holding back. And so maybe we need to stop and really consider, what is God calling you to do or proclaim right now in your life? I, I've shared a little bit about my story in the past, but I had a deep, deeply rooted fear of public speaking. Before entering ministry, a lot of people in this church who were friends of mine for a long time could attest to that. My wife could attest to that, like, crippling fear. In fact, it kept me from going into ministry for a long time. And I was so confused as to why would God was stirring my heart for this. Why was God stirring my heart to proclaim the good news and, and, and to preach when I was terrified by it? Like, it made no sense to me. And eventually, I got fed up with the fact that I just kept lying to people who asked me to speak at different things, and I would make up reasons why I couldn't. And I would get frustrated, I'm just lying to people, and now I'm just in sin because of this fear. And so I remember the day, I remember praying to God, 2013, and just saying, Lord, I'm just going to lay my yes down. And whatever offers come my way to speak, I'm just going to say yes and then figure it out. And if I'm not called to this, if you do not want me to go to ministry, don't give me any opportunities. And I'll be perfectly fine with that. <laughs> but if you do, I'm laying my yes down and I'll just see what happens. And it turns out, as they often are, that was a dangerous prayer. Sure enough, in time, God begins kind of lining up these opportunities. Could you read scripture here? Could you pray here? Could you give an upward devo? All down the line to eventually, hey, can you preach? I was like, dang it. 
because the fear was still there. Joseph, the fear was still there when he went. My fear was still there when I walked up here for the first time. But in a sense, I was freed from fear controlling me by the power of the Holy Spirit in me to just lay my yes down and follow my convictions to follow him. And in all of our lives, we don't just get courage from Jesus Christ. Our courage is Jesus Christ in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so my question is, what is God churning inside of you right now? Maybe you've shared it with others. You probably haven't. It could be something very little. It could be something very big. But what space do you want to step into to help others, to come to the aid of the least of these, to do something where you're kind of looking around and you're like, nobody else is doing this. Why not me? Not to make much of yourself, not to give yourself a platform, to make much of Christ, to glorify him, even if it costs you professionally, relationally, socially, like it did for Joseph. And for those of you in here who are not Christians, it starts with a simple but vital step of trusting in Jesus to be your personal savior. That maybe that's the fear that you're holding back for any number of reasons, but God's churning something inside you, and he's been doing it for a while, and he's been bringing you here, and you keep coming back, and you don't know why. And he's just pursuing you. And to just follow the conviction, let the, engaging your mind stir your heart and follow him. And then for those of you who do have a relationship with Christ, by God's grace, Maybe the next step is allowing that faith to propel you forward and overcome that fear to do whatever you feel like he's calling you to do. So could it be that this little passage so often overlooked in the Holy Week of the burial is what the Spirit uses to break down the walls of fear in your life that have kept you from doing what you've been wanting to do and infusing the courage in you to keep your eyes on Christ and get going with the next step. You see, we need the burial. It deepens faith, strengthens our witness, increases our courage. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that every single word of it is inspired, is inerrant, is used for building up the body of Christ for your name's sake. Lord, we thank you for these little verses tucked in our Bible, often overlooked. And I just pray that you would bring mighty fruit as a result from it, Lord, that you would engage our minds, you would stir our hearts, and all the while you would lift our eyes to look at you, Lord. We yearn for that deepened faith. We want that strengthened witness. We want that increased courage, Lord. Let today be the day that you do mighty work in the life of this church, and let it be all for your glory. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. Please stand and join us in worship.